Hello and welcome to Lit, a podcast for combating burnout. I'm your host, Kate Newberg, and this is episode 22. It's called Words as Bricks. And I want to spend a second talking about the title because um, I've been thinking about this idea of bricks and the, the topic today is going to be a lot about con- how conversations and how words and the words we use shape our realities. And I named it words as bricks because I feel like bricks have two kind of connotations in our world. Um, when we think of bricks, we think often of destruction and also construction. So bricks are kind of the quintessential revolutionary tool to throw through windows and uh, throw at things to cause destruction, but they're also the fundamental building blocks of structures. So in the same way, I think words can act in either of these two categories. They can either act destructively or they can act constructively. And our choice around that is what I want to talk about today. So I'm going to start with a passage from the Bible. And I want to disclaim that I'm not a religious scholar. And um, in a lot of ways, I'm not even affiliated with any one religion. I just, I'm really interested in the Bible as um, a fount of wisdom and as literature. And I think that we can get a lot of really um, powerful insights from the stories that are in the Bible. And what I'm starting this with the first verse in John, which is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And if we go, if we think about this um, kind of in a, in a cosmic way, we think, okay, the, the word created all of these objective things that we can see. It created our earth. It created our, um, you know, our, the people around us, all the things that we see that exist, we can, we can say it, it was, it originated in this idea of a word. Um, and I don't want to go too much into that because, um, people, scholars out there are so much more knowledgeable than I am. I, I just want to frame that, use that as a frame for thinking about us. So if we think that a person is a universe unto themselves, then the words that we have can create our whole world. The words that we live within and that we use can create our entire experience. Really all we have is our own experience. And this episode is going to talk about how we can use words to create the kind of experience that we want. So words are underneath what we say so they're, they're what we say, right? So all the words that I'm speaking right now, you can hear them. They're out in the world. Um, and in a sense, like I'm creating something right now through these words. I'm creating an experience for you. I'm creating a connection. Um, so, so words are what we say. And they're also underneath what we say. Um, and by that, I mean that we're driven by words that we, we probably don't even really realize. Um, there's this kind of constant chatter going on and I've talked about before in the podcast, but there's this constant chatter going on underneath everything that we're doing. That's filtering our experience. That's saying things like, do I agree with that? Do I not agree with that? Do I like that? Do I not like that? 
Um, should I align myself with that? Should I not align myself with that? There's this constant chatter that's filtering everything that we're experiencing as well. So the point of that was to talk about how we're, we use words to create and words are, we're wrapped in these layers of words, the words that actually come out of our mouths, the words that go on in our brain, the words that go on kind of underneath our level of consciousness. There's all these layers that are coming together to create our experience. And I, in many ways, these words create our reality. There's a really cool quote by Maxine Green, who is a, um, an existentialist writer in the field of education. And she says, thought grows through language. And I think this is a really profound statement to because what it what it means is that language is the cornerstone of our thinking that lang that our thinking is made up of language. And so when she says that thought grows through language what that means is that if we expand our language and we expand our conversation, we're also expanding our thinking, which is really cool. Um, when we're thinking about language, I, I, I went back to kind of one of the, one of the people who I admire most who talks about language, which is George Orwell. Um, and he claims that we have fallen into habits in our language, in the language that we use. And the, these habits in our language reflect kind of the habits in our lives. And he says the two kind of, it boils down to the two, the two habits we have are, um, by the way, this is in the, in the essay, Politics and the English Language, a, fa a really fascinating essay. And, um, and two of the habits he talks about that we've fallen into are what he calls staleness and lack of precision. And, when I think about staleness, I think about kind of a lack of originality that we're, that we're kind of, we're leaning on thoughts, ideas, the things that have come before us to express ourselves as opposed to creating something new to express ourselves and creating something vibrant and generative. And so he says we fall into this habit of staleness. And if staleness is defining our, our language, you can be sure that it's also um, in his view, it's defining all of, all of the underlying things that lead to language. So our thinking will also have fallen into a, into a habit of staleness, which will then pervade all of our experiences in life, our relationships, um, you know, the, our everything. So, um, so that's one habit of staleness. And then the other habit he talks about is a lack of precision. And precision... When I think about precision, I think about how important it is to have that in any process of creation. So it's so precision is related to this idea of stale. Lack of precision is related to this idea of staleness. In that, um, if you're not living into new thinking, um, then you're also kind of off the hook for having to be. Um, really precise in what it is that you say. And um, in, in the act of creation, um, and Rob Bell likes to talk about this in the, uh, when he's talking about the book of Leviticus, which is really interesting, is in this act of creation, the act of creation is the act of distinction. 
And um, it's saying this is this and that is that. If you're creating something, you would say, well, I want it to look like this, not that. I want to use these words, not those words. I want to create this experience, not that experience. And you go really into the details of things and you get very precise. So in, in a lot of ways, precision is um, one of the necessary ingredients of creation. And so what Orwell is talking about here is um, how these habits of language, staleness and lack of precision, um, what it's causing us to do is to fall into kind of a rut, um, to fall into kind of a rut with our language and our thinking and our experiences and ultimately our lives. And this is what... Um, this is what they call, uh, I, I think I mentioned last week, I recently did the Landmark Forum, um, and this is what, what they call a default future. So it's almost like these habits of language are causing you to live into a default future, like the thing that was always going to happen um, based on the past, essentially. Based on the past, this... Um, this and that and that will will probably happen without me having to intervene in any way. Um, and if you look at the path you're on now and you take a second to reflect, you'll probably see some sort of default future in that. Um, you know, it, there could be, and, and oftentimes the default future is not the thing that you really want to define your life within, right? But it's this, it's like if you're taking in the context of work, like if you're in some sort of organization and it's been going a certain way and you get promoted every seven years and it's on a really strict, you know, then you, you can expect to get a bonus at this time and all that. And it's all kind of laid out for you because that's what's happened before. And um, in a lot of ways, there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of inspiration or juice in that idea of a, of a default future. And so what I'm exploring today is this idea of how a, um, how we can use our language to turn that default future around into something that we into something that's more inspiring for us. So I want to read a quote from George Orwell. Um, it's from the first paragraph in in his essay Politics and the in and the English language. Excuse me. Um, and the quote starts: "Our civilization is decadent, and our language, so the argument runs, must inevitably share in the general collapse." It follows that any struggle against the abuse of language is a sentimental archaism, like preferring candles to electric light or handsome cabs to aeroplanes. Underneath this lies the half-conscious belief that language is a natural growth and not an instrument which we shape for our own purposes. So, there's there's two ideas in that quote that are creating um, kind of a what a generative tension, and one idea is the idea that not, that language is a natural growth, that it's just something that happens organically, and the other idea is that we can use language as an as an instrument that we can use to shape our own purposes, that we can deliberately and intentionally use language in a way that creates a certain experience for us. And going back to this idea that you're a universe, you in and of yourself are a universe, you are actually um, in some ways the god of your own universe because you have the power to create the experiences that you want. Uh, 
And so this, so Orwell kind of ends this quote with this idea that we can empower ourselves to shape our lives and that language is an instrument for that. So one quick reflection, and I know I've gone over this before, um, is for you to think about, start noticing your language. What kind of language do you use? What does it sound like to you? Does it sound defeatist? Does it sound inspiring? Does it sound like it resonates with your deepest values? Um, wh what is what is going on? And and it's easy to start just by looking at what comes out of your mouth, right? Like um, when you start, I think, doing a lot more internal work like meditation and um, all sorts of different, um, you could do, uh, there's all sorts of different paths to self-exploration. Um, you'll start to notice that inner voice and then the layers underneath that inner voice, but it's all kind of coming out and manifesting out in, in the, in the world. And so start to notice what kind of language you use and be, uh, maybe, and start thinking about using your language as an instrument. Um, I know that I have cut out all, um, self-deprecating humor from my, it, that used to be my my favorite thing, but I've, I've really cut that out of my vocabulary. Um, and it's funny because if I, and if I hear my friends deprecating themselves, I say something, my friend used this line once and I loved it. It's, I say, don't talk about my friend that way. <laughs> um, you know, if they say something about themselves or, or, if, or, if, you know, like, oh, I'm so dumb or, oh, I'm so clumsy or something like that. These little things, right. Suddenly they're shaping your experience of yourself and of your world and they make a big impact. So um, think right now about what are some, what are some things that you can do to, to start shaping your experience in a better way? And that is something we have a lot of power over. And that is something we can create for ourselves. That being said, <laughs> I want, that's a big, I have a big shift I want to make right now in the podcast. So first part talking about how we have a lot of power to shape our own experiences, shape our own lives. Um, and using language as an instrument for that, that is absolutely true. Um, but that being said, I want us also to see ourselves as threads in a larger tapestry. And we can say, and I think there's a lot of self-help out there that talks about, it's like, I think of it as like rah, rah, independence. Like you are the master of your fate and all these things. Um, and that's in a lot of ways, that's true. Um, but I think it also can fail to acknowledge that we're, we're woven into this larger system. And I've been thinking about collectivist versus individualist cultures. And if you, um, especially with having been in education, I often being, you know, from Western being American, we have one of the most, if not the most individualist cultures in the entire world, which means that we're very into this whole idea of independence, self-reliance, all these things. And I've worked often with, my students are often from more collectivist cultures. And collectivist cultures are more concerned with uh, the idea of the, of the group and creating comfort. And um, I, I know I'm not explaining this very well, but like they're much more oriented around the group and they're much more oriented around the collective. And there's obviously um, strengths and limitations to both ways of living. Uh, but one of the things I found living in an individualist culture is that 
it will often drive underneath the surface. There's, there's all of this stuff going on that gets driven underneath the surface because we don't, we don't like to acknowledge it as people who are masters of our faith and people who are totally independent. Um, and that is a really important shift to begin to make in our thinking when we're thinking about, yes, yes, I am empowered as an individual and I am also inextricably connected with this larger um, tapestry and with these larger communities. And so there is, again, what I call that generative tension, there's this generative tension between um, creating an empowering uh, life for ourselves as an individual and then also acknowledging that we're being shaped and that we have been shaped by the forces around us, as, which is kind of a paraphrase of the David White, um, a David White poem. And so, um, so as one of the one of the limitations I find to an individualist culture is that this is a lot less obvious. We are a lot less um, likely to to say something like, "I'm." Uh, I am this way because I've been shaped this way, or I'm struggling because um, of these larger forces at work. And so that's all very conceptual. Here's an example, something I've I've talked about before, but it's the, this idea of burnout, right? Um, in our in our culture, we often will treat something like burnout as a personal problem, and it's like, well, you're experiencing burnout. That's your problem. You're empowered to create your experience. Uh, if you're not feeling inspired or passionate, then that must be something you're doing wrong. And you must not have enough grit or resilience or passion or drive or whatever it is to stay inspired on the job. And um, and that's that's a pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of mentality. Uh, and what that does is it drives underneath the surface some of the larger forces that might be contributing to the burnout, which... I've talked a lot about in this in this podcast, but it could be something like um, the company has uh, paid lip service to certain goals and then is actually driving toward other goals. Um, like if you're again talking about teachers, if you go into teaching to make a difference in kids' lives and you're only being evaluated on test scores, well, that's a disconnect that's going to cause burnout, no matter how passionate you are. And so I think what this acknowledgement does. Um, this acknowledgement of larger forces does is it allows us to see our predicament in a much bigger context and it allows us to see the ways in which we are being um, influenced. And uh, I, I will probably be doing many, many more episodes on these ways that we're being influenced because it's what I'm writing a book on, uh, which is kind of uncovering these myths that, that influence us, but then are placed entirely on the shoulders of the individual. So an example being the culture of grit. Another example being a culture of sacrifice, like sacrifice is inherently noble. We haven't really examined that assumption um, in many ways, especially in helping professions. But these are the larger forces that drive us and that influence us and that are really driven underneath the surface. So um, what does this have to do with language? So I've been thinking about the way that larger systems actually 
occur in action. And um, I've been, and I'm thinking about this just to give you guys a frame in the context of one organization or one company. And when we look at the actual mechanism for change in a company or the actual mechanisms of the processes that are happening in the company, what we're seeing is that it's all happening in conversation. And this is an idea that really struck me, um, this idea that conversation is the mechanism by which a company operates or a larger um, entity operates. I, um, I was first turned on to this idea by a book called The Three Laws of Performance. And it's a really interesting book, um, but it really talks about the power of shaping if we're taking like at, a, at an individual level, you can shape your life through what you say. If you take that a step out and look at a whole company in shaping the conversations, you can really influence the way the company, the way the people in the company experience it. So I encourage you just to get a sense of like, what is ground zero if you're wor- if you work in a larger organization or a larger company, just kind of be a detective for a little while and listen to some of the conversations that are happening. Odds are they're going to be pretty all over the place, <laughs> right? Like you're going to have um, you're going to have snippets of conversations of on all different things. And one of the one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast and I'm talking about language is that I had a friend get in touch with me the other day. And he said, how do I tell my management that what they're doing is burning me out? And on the surface, that seems like such a simple question. You could just say, well, just go tell them. Right. Um, But if you really start digging into it, you start to see all of the different layers that have gone into him asking that question. And One of the things that I think about is um, so many organizations haven't actually set up um, with integrity and with intention uh, a mechanism for uh, for driving conversation, honest conversation in their company. And so what's happening is all these people are having all these experiences and all these kind of like under the radar conversations that if you think about conversation as a driving mechanism, these conversations that are all over the place are fragmenting the focus of the company or the organization versus setting up channels for communication, um, channels for open and honest communication where you can trust that you'll be listened to. And um, kind of like a thinking of it as a two-way channel. So not just uh, boss said this, now manager says this, now... Um, you know, you go implement it, but like having management actually take in all of the things that are happening um, kind of under the surface of their organization and create channels for it and create structures for it. Um, And like, this is a radical question. Uh, What if you had an honest conversation at work, like a conversation that came from your heart? What if there was space for that kind of vulnerability at work 
what if you could go to your boss and say, when you do this, I feel, and, and, and have them really listen to you, not just think of you as a complainer, right? But go to them and with your heart in your hand and say, when you do this, or when you enact this policy, or when I have to do this, it makes me feel like I'm not enacting the true reason I came here. And I'm not making the kind of difference I want to. And I'm not making the kind of impact I want to. And this policy is directly, feels like a direct barrier to that. I mean, what a radical question, right? If the conversations that could happen within a company were honest and from the heart and vulnerable. And then to think that your boss or whoever there would actually listen to that and not just not listen to it through their filter. Remember, we talked about that filter of that voice that's always going and through their filter here, what they hear is, oh, this person's just complaining. They don't want to do their work, right? But they actually, without that filter, hear that and say, what is, you know, something like, what, what is that like for you? Or what kind of solution can you think of? Or, you know, how can we make this be a better experience for you as a, as a organization? Like how radical would that be to have that kind of trust in an organization? And it's all happening through conversation. So here's another quote from George Orwell that I, that's, that struck me. He said, so going back to the habits, right? We talked about habits of staleness, habits of lack of precision, that oftentimes are um, those habits are stopping us from doing something truly revolutionary or truly new or truly vulnerable, right? A conversation that comes from your heart saying, this policy you're enacting is, is driving me from my purpose, feels like it's driving me from my purpose. You know, that's not a stale conversation, right? That's a new area that you're exploring. So thinking about those habits, this, this quote, this other quote from George Orwell, he says, if one gets rid of these habits, one can think more clearly. And to think clearly is a necessary first step toward political regeneration. So if, if we, if we take out the word political and replace it with um, well, actually political does make sense, but I'm thinking more like more in, again, in the context of an organization, right? To think clearly is the first step toward regeneration. Um, that's a really powerful statement, right? And when we think clearly, again, we're taking away, we're getting rid of those habits of staleness and lack of precision. And to think clearly means that you're thinking new, original and precise thoughts that you can then communicate. And these, um, I know Eckhart Tolle says that truly or true originality surfaces from the heart. So in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is clearing away these habits of communication and these habits of language that we have and allowing these new ways of thinking to emerge that we can then shape in a precise way to make a difference. And um, imagine if you if you could start a, a meeting like that. Imagine if you could start a conversation like that. And and then on the other side of things in these last couple of minutes, I want to talk about from the other side, like if you coming to your management that way with your heart in your hand and with, with a clear mind, right? Not with like, um, not with a bunch of complaints, but with a true, but with a truth, a precise an original truth of, that is yours, 
that is your universe that you bring to them. And then imagine on the other side, right? If that trust extended both ways and the leadership through their words and through their conversations created a space of integrity. And what if they actually said what they valued and you could trust that. And when they said what they valued and they said they were going to take initiatives, you could actually trust them to follow through on that. And their words weren't just floating around um, stale and imprecise, but their words were precise and, and vibrant and had their whole integrity behind them. How much would that type of conversation transform a company? So in this last minute or so, I just want to say that um, a quick recap of this uh, whirlwind, <laughs> whirlwind little um, ex exploration to words as bricks, but we go back to this and we can say words can be used to build or they can be used destructively. And yes, we have responsibility. We as our own universe have responsibility for creating the experience that we have through language. But if we look at the larger organism of a company, we can think of conversation as a mechanism for driving that company forward. And if we do that, how might our thinking change around um, how to hold ourselves and our leadership accountable to what they say, how they say it, and the kinds of channels and mechanisms and structures they create for conversation? Whew. So... This has been another episode of Lit, a podcast for combating burnout. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Kate Newberg. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. My email address is kate, K-A-T-E, at deeppractices.com, or you can just go to my website, deeppractices.com. Thanks so much, and we'll be tuning in, not next week, I'm on a bye, but the week after, so can't wait to get back to it. And um, I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your week. Bye.